Uh, hey, we've got kind of a fun Sunday for you this morning, um, and it kind of worked out in some, some strange different ways, but about six months ago, five months ago, four months ago, I don't remember how many months ago it was, but I invited a friend of mine to come speak this morning, and we're going to kind of be able to introduce her in a little while, uh, but wanted Jenny Yang to be able to come out and share with us, because Jenny's a colleague at World Relief and is just a phenomenal person. She's given her life to advocacy things, uh, works on Capitol Hill, puts together breakfasts that uh, bring all sorts of evangelical leaders together on topics like immigration and gets people like Obama to show up for meetings like that. It's just a very rare sliver of life, and so I think it gives her a credibility to speak to an intersection that I think is really hard for most of us to kind of grab hold of, and that's how do we take the things that are in Scripture, um, our own kind of personal faith and life and all the strange constraints there, and then also this whole idea of public policy. and How do those things really relate or connect? And I, I don't know too many people that really get that, and I don't know too many people that have the experience background she does. And so um, we all kind of have those issues of wanting to change the world and feeling heavy and, and always feeling how in the world do I make a difference that way? Uh, it's endemic, actually, and, and um, we're a part of that sometimes. You probably come to Antioch and think, man, I'm always walking out and feeling guilty. Uh, but I want there to be a conversation that, that gets a little deeper to the level of calling, not just felt needs or urgency, but allows us as a church, allows us as individuals just to put our lives before God and say, how... How would God use me if instead of just saying, what do I do right now? What do I do right, you know, right now, trafficking? How do I end it now, today, on Facebook? <laughs> you know, it's like, really? I'm not going to end it on Facebook uh, or today. But how do, we, how do we come to God maybe and say, instead of now, 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 and all this guilt and all this sense of urgency, how do we come and just put our lives in front of God and say, talk to me about my calling. Talk to me about how you would use the next 10, 20 years of my life if I would just give you my life. Um, show me how that might work with my family or my career or my job. And so there's this conversation that I, I really want to get at over the next year or two or however long. But we really get away from this um, felt emotionalism all the time and just wrestle with what does it mean to put our lives before God and let him begin to direct that. So I'm kind of excited to have Jenny here today. But before we bring her up, um, I have a friend, Stephen Bowman, who's here, and, and he can come on up. And Stephen is the president and CEO of World Relief. And so all of a sudden we got a World Relief monopoly going today. And since Stephen was here, I kind of thought it would be appropriate and kind of fun for him to be able to give the introduction uh, for Jenny, who's going to come up and share with us. So Stephen, if you would. Yes, thank you. And if you want to follow the Race for Congo, worldrelief.org, and there's a link right off the front page, Race for the Congo. We'll be blogging and videoing and so forth. Jenny Yang is a personal hero of mine and my wife. Jenny is driven by a core passion. You'll see it as she speaks, as she tells stories. Core passion first for Christ, for his word, for God's word, and for those who are absent, those who are left out, those who are on the margins. And Jenny is a passionate uh, activist in all the best sense of that word. Jenny uh, went to the University of Johns Hopkins, studied international relations, 
and worked for Will Belief for a number of years before she took her current role, which is Director of Advocacy and Policy. She's written a book called Welcoming the Stranger. Do you have copies of that book? Perhaps in the bookstore there might be some. All on the issue of immigration, coming from a biblical point of view, what is it that um, God calls us to do and how do we respond to the stranger, to the immigrant? And it's a powerful book. If you have questions on that theme, Jenny can answer them today, but also in her book. Um, so welcome, Jenny. We're glad to have you, and uh, give us your thoughts today. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's always a pleasure for me to be here. Um, the first time I was in Ben was early in uh, this year in February where I was participating in the Justice Conference. And every time I come, I just realize what a beautiful part of the country this is. Um, I'm originally from, born and raised in Philadelphia. I ended up in Baltimore because I went to Johns Hopkins. And as Stephen said, I've been working there um, for the past almost 10 years now, um, working at World Relief. Um, what's interesting is that in 2006, when I started as a director for advocacy, it was funny because when I told my friends and my family that I was doing advocacy, they asked me, well, advocacy, what, what's advocacy? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What does that mean? And what do you actually do for, for World Relief? Um, and it was interesting because when I took on this full-time position um, of advocacy at World Relief, um, one of the issues that I started focusing on was the issue of immigration. Um, and part of my job as um, the advocacy director was to educate churches to get them engaged on the issue that concerned world relief, and one of them was immigration. But the other part of that was to bring the Christian voice into the political realm where legislators are making policies and laws every day that affect millions of people, and especially millions of very poor and disenfranchised people, and to make that Christian voice heard. And what I realized in the, literally the first three months of me starting in a full-time advocacy position was that on a lot of issues, not just with immigration, the Christian voice was completely absent. On a lot of the justice issues, on the news we hear about a lot of the suffering um, in the Horn of Africa these days, um, and maybe Congo, and maybe immigration, I realized that a lot of Christians weren't using their voice to influence legislatures. And in fact, what happened was that a lot of um, policymakers ended up making policies that weren't necessarily reflective of biblical values, um, and in fact harmed a lot of the people that I feel like God um, has a deep concern for. Um, so today, I'm going to spend a little bit of my time talking about Scripture and how that um, equips Christians to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. And I also want to spend my time looking at one specific biblical character to really use as an example for us when we feel burdened to know how to respond in a way um, where we can use advocacy um, to help those who are in need. But I want to share first about two specific instances of oppression um, and of injustice around the world that many of you um, may or may not know about. And the first is um, the issue of refugees who are fleeing from Burma. Um, I went in April with a team of about three people, a photographer, a lawyer, and then a former person from Burma, um, to the northeast corner of India to a state called Mizoram. And many, I had not heard of Mizoram um, more than a, two years ago, but this is a very small state in India where it's over 90% Christian. So the church is very, very strong in India. But what has happened to this small Christian community in this area of India is that 70% of its border is international. So on the western side of Mizoram, 
um, you have Bangladesh, and then on the eastern side, you have Burma. And Mizoram has become a refuge for the thousands of people who are fleeing from Burma. And what we saw when we went to the Mizoram is that there was around 100,000 refugees who had fled from Burma and are living in Mizoram, and that makes up about 10% of the entire population of Mizoram. And we heard horrific stories of what these people went through in Burma. And a lot of times we think, oh, you know, they fled across the border. But most oftentimes with refugees, they don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave everything behind. But oftentimes they're forced into a situation where they have to because they're fleeing um, danger and, and, and fear of their lives. Um, you can see from this photo here that Mizoram is a beautiful area of India. It's very mountainous. Um, but when we met a lot of these refugees, they were living in tiny, tiny huts along the side of the road. Um, this man had been living in Mizoram for over about five years with his family, and he was actually taking care of about five kids in his area. Um, this was a man whose brother had actually fought against the Burmese military, and that's why he was persecuted. He was actually detained for over a month in Burma, and then he fled across the border into India, and he was living in a tiny little hut when we had the chance to talk to him. And because refugees fled into this area of India, a lot of them are actually not recognized by the Indian government. They're actually completely ignored by the Indian government. So many of them, because they don't have any legal status or any kind of documentation, um, what happens is they work in the underground economy in this area of India. And for example, they work in places like rock quarries. And from the rock quarries, they get the rocks and they cut them into little um, pieces so that they can actually use them for construction and for the building of houses. Um, these refugees, because they don't have documentation, get paid about 2 to $3 a day. They work 10 to 12 hours a day. And in certain cases, they don't even get paid at all because they have no, no voice to actually say that they have the right to even get paid in their society. And one of the biggest instances of oppression that we actually saw in Mizoram, and this is something we hadn't even heard about when we were um, researching things before our trip, was that when we talked to all the church leaders, they said that there's such a high rate of death in their community. And one of the most blatant forms of discrimination is that they can't bury their own dead within the city limits. So they have to literally spend all their resources and all the hard-earned money they have to transport a dead body to the outskirts of the city. And you can see in this photograph here that they are given a plot of land where they have to spend hours a day clearing the brush so they can literally bury just one dead body. And this is a big concern for the Christian leaders there because when someone dies, it's an opportunity for them to celebrate the life of the person who passed away. But here in Mizoram, they didn't just flee persecution in Burma, but they're discriminated against in India. And they're literally castigated to the margins of society where they have to bury their dead in places like this. Um, we also met with groups of refugees, and what we found in this one circumstance was that there was about 35 leaders who gathered at this one church, um, and we asked them, how many of you have had malaria in your life? 30 out of 35 of those leaders had raised their hand. Then we asked them, well, how many of you were detained in India? And they said that about 15 out of the 35 had been detained. And you'll see if the, um, there's a man who's standing on the left-hand corner there, um, he actually said that he was detained for 45 days because he was accused of a crime that he never committed. Um, and because he was a refugee, he had no voice to speak up. And in fact, when he was released, he couldn't find any restitution because he was only a refugee. 
Um, he fled, again, horrific things in Burma. We know what the Burmese military does, but yet what's even more tragic is that when they go to India, a place of refuge, they still can't access their full rights. Um, I want to share with you the story of this one woman in particular, just to talk about some of the oppressive things that happened in Burma. She was actually a Christian woman who sang and was on the verge of signing a record label for um, some of her amazing um, uh, songs that she sang. And, and when the Burmese military realized that she was a Christian singer and that she was about to come up with an album, they detained her for over a month, and they detained not just her but her entire family in Burma, and they told her that if you come out with this album, that we're not going to release you from jail. And so she said that she wouldn't, but then when she um, got out of jail, she didn't want to stay in Burma, so she fled across the border. What's interesting is that the, um, the Burmese man that we were traveling with, he actually remembered her from the time that he was in Burma over 10 years ago. And this is when she was at the height of her career. So when we were going through the markets in Mizoram, he randomly found this woman because he said, oh, I think she looks really familiar. And then after talking to her, we realized that she had actually become a refugee because she was persecuted because of the singing that she was doing in India. And this is a woman who, um, who was a teacher in Burma, and one of her 14-year-old girls was raped by two Burmese soldiers. Um, at the same time, her her family was detained. One of her brothers was killed after three days of torture. And then one of her other brothers was also um, tortured, and his left hand was cut off. But then they fortunately fled to India, where they're living today. But when she was telling me her story, she couldn't stop crying because of the injustices that she faced in her life. But what's happening in Mizoram isn't just the only instance of injustice. We heard from Stephen this morning about what's happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And what's happening there is um, there's been an ongoing conflict since 1998 where 5 million people have died, and they say that this is the deadliest conflict that has happened since World War II. The Democratic Republic of Congo is about the size of Europe, and can you imagine millions of people passing away in Europe? But the same thing has happened in Congo, and yet are we paying attention as a community there? They actually say that the Democratic Republic of Congo is the worst place in the world to live for a woman. It's because the Congolese say it's not a matter of if a woman will be raped, but when she will be raped. Um, and in fact, so many rebel groups are operating there that they've operated with such impunity. And this is a real sense of oppression as well, because the government of Congo has failed to protect its own people. And you can see from some of these photos, um, this is one of a hospital that actually cares for some of the rape victims. Um, and it's really an instance of oppression and injustice that many of us have never heard of. But today, I think we'll hear more of, um, especially as people participate in the race for Congo. Oppression and injustice, we can hear about it from the news and from all instances throughout the world. And to put it simply, oppression is when the God-giving rights and dignity of an individual or people are taken away by an authority with greater power. And I think as Christians, so much of the work that we do and that we're taught by the church to do is to minister to an individual on an interpersonal level. But sometimes there is oppression that has to do with structural um, injustices that we as Christians need to use our voice to speak out against. And it says in Proverbs 31.8, which I think is a seminal verse in the Bible, to call Christians to a spirit of advocacy, it says to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute, to speak up and to judge fairly, to defend the rights of the poor and needy. And what we see is that, imagine the, um, the most prominent parable in the New Testament is a parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And we know that what happens in this story, a good Samaritan sees a person beat up along the side of the road, and he doesn't just pass him by, he actually goes by, picks him up, and takes care of him until he's physically well again. But what would happen, let's say, that we read the story and we continue, and let's say the good Samaritan doesn't just journey on the Jericho road, but he actually returns on a journey, and he sees another person beat up along the side of the road, And then he makes the journey again, and he sees another person beat up along the side of the road. At a certain point, we must ask, well, the Good Samaritan can minister to this individual's need, but we must ask, why is it that every time he passes along the Jericho Road, there's someone who's beat up along the side of the road? What's wrong with this road, and why is it producing so many of these people? You know, Martin Luther um, King Jr. said it so well when he said, on the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And Martin Luther King knew in his day that there was injustices around him. He saw his own people being lynched. He saw his own people being segregated and not given the full dignity that God had intended for them. And he used his voice and the voice of the community to really rally together to address the injustice that he felt was so needed in his community. But I think as Christians, we can become easily discouraged. But I want to talk about two factors today that I think should give us some encouragement. And the first is that we know that God loves justice and that God hates injustice. It says in Deuteronomy 10.18 that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And in Psalm 11, it says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. For the Lord is righteous and he loves justice. And in fact, one Um, Many of the times that we see God most angry in the Old Testament is when people were oppressing the poor and there was being injustice perpetrated against the people that he cared about. But it's not just God who gives us example through his character, but we also see, I think the ultimate advocate for all Christians is the example of Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because when he was here on earth, he advocated for the people who were living on the margins. He called out the Pharisees who were using religious religiosity to push people off to the side. He brought in the people at the margins to sit at the table with him, and he rebuked his disciples constantly, saying that whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. But Jesus wasn't just an earthly advocate. I also think that he was a divine advocate as well, because what we realize is that he died on behalf of humanity. He took the sins upon himself, and because of that, he is the ultimate advocate on behalf of humanity before God. In fact, it says in 1 John 2, 1-2 that, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If Christ was humanity's advocate, and in the end, the advocate for, um, for all of us in the heavenly realm, we, I think, as Christ's ambassadors, must redeem that spirit of advocacy of being a voice for the least of these in, in the actions that we take upon ourselves as a body of Christ um, in our daily interactions. Um, and one of the people that I want to focus on today is Nehemiah. And many of you may know the story of Nehemiah. It's a story about a king's cupbearer. But what we don't see, maybe, is that he was someone who was used by God mightily in addressing some of the injustices that he saw around him. 
I think as Christians, so many, so many times we can feel overwhelmed, but I think, as Ken was saying this morning, you know, what is it that God's calling us to do to address a lot of the poverty and injustice issues that we see around us? And I think Nehemiah can give us a great example. So let's read first Nehemiah 1 through 4. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in their province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the, its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When we see this, it's interesting because we may think, well, why was Nehemiah so distressed? What was so overwhelming to him that he fasted and mourned and prayed? And it's um, to give somewhat of a historical context to what happened in Nehemiah, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, had actually been taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon for over 70 years. Um, and it wasn't until um, King Nebuchadnezzar himself was defeated and there was a new Persian king that allowed the Israelites to, um, to leave exile, to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple of God. And so when the, um, the Jewish people returned back to Jerusalem, they started rebuilding the temple of God, we read in Ezra. But up to this point in Nehemiah, no one had focused on rebuilding the walls because it seemed like a completely impossible task for them. It was in ruins. There was fire all around it. They thought as a people they could build a temple of God, but they couldn't rebuild this wall. So when Nehemiah heard about this, what was initially a casual inquiry turned into an overwhelming burden for him because he cried about it, and he identified with the people who were his people who were suffering. And from the beginning of Nehemiah, we have indication that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. And today we may think, oh, that must be the worst job in the world because you're basically tasked with making sure that the king doesn't get poisoned. But what we realize is that in um, his position as a cupbearer, he wasn't just uh, the king's uh, food taker, but he was actually someone who gave counsel and who discussed with the king various issues of concern to him. And so we realized that he was in a unique position to use um, his influence with the king to help his own people. But ne what we realized is that Nehemiah didn't just brood on it, that he actually actively took the burden that God had given him and placed it before God and asked him through prayer that we see in Nehemiah 1.5. It says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, I was cupbearer to the king. So what we realize is that Nehemiah prayed this prayer, and oftentimes it's a great example, because 
when we feel burdened with something or when we want to take action on something, the first thing we immediately do is that afternoon we do something about it. But we see in the story of Nehemiah that he brought his burden before God. And it was only when Nehemiah brought his burden before God that he was able to sense the right opportunity for him to fulfill his calling, as well as the right opportunity to use his position to ask the king for great things. So we see, as we continue on in Nehemiah 2.10, that in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servants have found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent an army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And what do we see in the second passage? What's interesting is that when Nehemiah first heard about what was happening in Jerusalem and he prayed about it, it wasn't until four months after he made that initial prayer that this instance of him asking the king for anything actually came into place. And we know through Nehemiah that it was only through his prayerful action that he knew when the king approached him that this was the right time he felt like that he could ask the king not just for permission to go to Jerusalem, but we see through this passage that Nehemiah was incredibly bold. I mean, I can't imagine going to the president and asking him, you know, for a million dollars to build up something for the people of Congo, but this is exactly what he did. He actually went to the king and said, let me go help my people, but while you're at it, can you also give me safe conduct so that I can arrive in Jerusalem safely, and can you also give me some timber and wood so that, um, you know, I can help rebuild a wall for my people? Not only that, he also got a whole cavalry to go with him so he can be safe and that they could offer some kind of protection while he was in Jerusalem. I think this is an amazing response. Nehemiah prayed about this for over four months, and in that amount of time, God was able to put the king in a position where he was able to use Nehemiah and give him most of the things he needed to actually rebuild the wall. But what's interesting is that we read in Nehemiah 2.11 that he actually ended up in Jerusalem, and it says in Jerusalem 2.11-20, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There are no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And then um, when we skip to verse 16, it says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. 
Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he didn't find just a broken wall. He found broken people who needed spiritual restoration. But we see that Nehemiah didn't just have a burden for his people, and he didn't just go to God in prayer, but he had to overcome tremendous obstacles and difficulties for him to even accomplish his mission. We know that um, Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite regularly mocked and ridiculed the Jews in their work for God to rebuild the walls. And in fact, it got so bad to a point that we read in Nehemiah that they didn't just mock and try to inhibit the Jews from rebuilding the wall. They started personally attacking Nehemiah, actually questioning his intent in rebuilding the wall and slandering him and getting a lot of people to go against Nehemiah himself. But what's interesting about the story is that Nehemiah could have, I think, been easily overwhelmed at the task that he felt like God had called him to do. And he had to summon the the graces of God to really battle against a lot of people who were going against him. But more than that, what we see in the story of Nehemiah is that he sought the help of fellow people to accomplish the mission with him. It says here in um, verse 18 that they replied, let us start rebuilding, and they began this good work. They responded positively, and I think it was a confirmation for Nehemiah that this was, again, the calling that God had placed on his life. I think a lot of times as Christians, whenever there's an overwhelming task before us, or when we feel like God has called us to do something specifically, we feel like we're often alone to accomplish this calling, that we're often alone and overwhelmed because we ourselves don't have what it takes to do what we feel like God has called them to do. But what seemed like an impossible task, Nehemiah wasn't alone to fulfill it. He, in fact, gathered others around him to rebuild this wall. And um, he actually rebuilt the wall in a record uh, 52 days. And lastly, I want to highlight the fact that Nehemiah was in a position of influence. It said that he was the governor of Judah and that um, he basically could lord over the the people of Judah of Jerusalem if he wanted to. But what we see throughout the story of Nehemiah is that he saw injustice even within his own community of Jewish people who were basically put into poverty because they were rebuilding the wall, as well as Jewish lenders who would give to the Jewish people until they were in debt. And so he called out those lenders and said, look, we're all in this together. You can't Uh, take advantage of your fellow Jewish people and when we're all trying to build this wall together. So he called out the injustices of that time. We also see that he could have easily taxed his people as the governor of Judah. He could have easily taken away their food, which was a uh, practice of a lot of governors of Jerusalem in that day. But he didn't resort to any of those methods and in fact invited a lot of the Jewish people, the poorest of the the Jewish people that come before him at the governor's table and actually partake partake in some of the goodness that God had given him as governor during that time. Um, What's interesting is that, like I said, after this tremendous obstacles that were put in his place, and after the Jewish people banded together to build this wall, that the wall was complete in 52 days. And it says, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. 
But I think I want to emphasize two big points about this passage in Nehemiah, because it's not just about an individual who had a burden, who lifted it, God's, um, God in prayer, who overcame many obstacles and had integrity and commitment throughout the entire process. But we, we see throughout the story of Nehemiah is that when there is injustice in the world, God doesn't just call an individual to do something about it. He often calls the body of Christ to do something about it. And that's part of God's redemptive plan throughout the history, I think, of the world. Um, we see that also, secondly, not only does God use his people to bring about in, um, justice in his world, but that oftentimes when we minister a per- to a person's physical and economic needs, it can actually lead to that person experiencing God in, um, fully and being spiritually restored in a way that they didn't experience when they were in Prussian. So this wall in Jerusalem wasn't just a physical wall that offered the, uh, the Jewish people protection. It actually, I think, symbolized a spiritual um, symbol for the people of Jerusalem. Because during that time when they were in captivity, when they were in exile, they were being oppressed on a daily basis by the king of Babylon and also the king of Persia. But what the building of the temple and the wall meant was that they could turn their focus back to God and be built back as a people who revered God and were faithful to him in fulfilling all the things that God had called out to do from the beginning. So what we see in the story of Jer- um, in Nehemiah is that the people praised and worshipped him. Um, it says here that in uh, Nehemiah 8, 5, 6, that Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You know, what's phenomenal, phenomenal about the story is that the Jewish people turned back to God. And what's fascinating is that In Nehemiah 8.17, it says, From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was great. Day after day, they read from the book um, of God, from the law of God. And what's amazing is that right before this, they said that they woke up at the crack of dawn until noon, and they read throughout the Bible. And all of them were so captive by what God was doing and so worshipful that God had brought them to a place where he used Nehemiah to rebuild the temple, that their faith in God was completely restored. And what's interesting is that this is the last recorded spiritual awakening in the entire Old Testament, is when the um, people of of Jerusalem had their wall rebuilt through the um, leadership of Nehemiah. And the people of Nehemiah's time needed to see God using them, building them up, and allowing them to accomplish an almost impossible feat of rebuilding the wall, despite great opposition in 52 days. It allowed them to remember a God of justice who was faithful and merciful. And I believe this is true today. We hear about what's happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo and even with immigrants and refugees and those who are fleeing persecution all around the world. And oftentimes we may ask, well, what can we as a church or what can I do as an individual? But what's interesting is that when we meet oftentimes the physical needs or the economic needs or even the social needs of that person through reforming structures, it can often lead to that person worshiping God and experiencing spiritual renewal in a way that they weren't able to when they were in oppression. So in the end, I believe that not only God uses people as part of his redemptive plan for the whole of history, but that it's also meeting structural reforms and economic changes and a lot of the injustices that we see around us, that people are able to experience God in the way that God intended them from the beginning. 
So how can we relate the Nehemiah story to us today, living in the United States of America, living here in Bend, Oregon, um, as a body of believers um, who can really do much, I think, for God? I think there are two great challenges um, in the current day. Um, in the current day, the first is that I think as Christians we have a tendency to forget. Um, you know, sometimes we can forget what we're supposed to do during the day, but other times we can read about what happens in Congo, we can read about what happens with those who are persecuted, but we forget because we have other things to do, we have a busy day, and that's fine because I think God does want us to enjoy the things that he's given us as well. But God knows that we are not naturally inclined to remember the injustices of the suffering. So God calls us in Hebrews 13.3 to remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. God calls us to remember those who are suffering because he wants us to, to think as though we ourselves were suffering with the body of believers. And in fact, as Stephen shared this morning, many of the people who are suffering are people who are part of the body of Christ. They're fellow Christians who are suffering for their faith or born in a country where oftentimes they can't overcome the oppression themselves. And it says in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one part of the body suffers, that we all have to suffer together. I think the second challenge for Christians is not just that we forget, but that sometimes it can seem so overwhelming for us as a single person to do anything. But I think Nehemiah teaches us a good story. It teaches us that sometimes when we're called to fight an injustice, we're not called to do it alone. In fact, he's equipped the body of Christ in our individual unique circumstances and gifts to work together oftentimes to overcome injustices. And secondly, it's oftentimes only with guidance and prayer that God gives us the abilities and the opportunities to really pursue justice in his name. And we saw throughout the instance of Nehemiah that it was only when he cultivated a close relationship with God, when he went to God in prayer, when he uh, put before God the burdens that he had for his people, that God was able to use Nehemiah to lead the people um, to a place where they were able to experience spiritual renewing in a way that they hadn't before or in a way that we hadn't seen recorded um, up until the New Testament. Um, what's interesting is that I think in the history of Christianity, um, from Jesus' death on the cross up until now, there has been historic moments where Christians have um, brought up the call to actually be the principal leaders in issues of um, calling for justice in our world. You know, we saw this. Many of you may have seen the movie Amazing, uh, Amazing Grace with the uh, story of William Wilberforce, who was at the turn of the 19th century um, someone who God used to basically eradicate slavery during his time. This is a burden that William Wilberforce carried with him in his entire life. From the time he was a British parliamentarian until literally the day that he died, he didn't see the successes of his efforts, but all he did was he was a voice. He knew what was wrong in society and he used his voice to influence all those around him. And even in the very beginning, we see that he was probably the only person during that time who was saying anything against slavery at that time. We also see that in the 1950s and 60s here in the United States, that's literally only 50 or 60 years ago, that um, Martin Luther King Jr. used his voice to go against injustice in his community, where one group of people were segregated, where they were considered inferior to the majority group here. And it was through him working through the church and also using his voice that he basically, um, he didn't end segregation and discrimination, but I think he did a lot to change the laws, even of our country, to reflect what was a God-given dignity of these people. But there may be lesser instances of advocacy and of God using Christians that we may not know about. 
Um, did you guys know that in 404 AD that Christians were at the head of a movement to eradicate the barbaric um, gladiator fights that were happening that would basically pit many people together where people were thrown into the middle of a ring and that Christians were used to actually end the gladiator fights at that time? Or did you even know that in the mid-1800s there was a ritual in India where if you're a widow and your husband passed away that you were thrown into the fire um, during your husband's burial because you weren't worthy to live when your husband passed away. And it was Christians who overturned their practice in the, India because they knew that this wasn't an issue of justice. Or did you know that in the early 1900s where the binding of um, the girls' feet in China, um, that Christians actually ended that, that cultural practice as well because they felt like this was something that the women themselves didn't actually want to do as well. So not only do you see Christians being used by God in major instances of injustice around the world, but even smaller instances that we probably don't hear about on a day-to-day basis. You know, as Christians, I think there will continue to be injustices in our world. There will continue to be things that we hear about from, the, from today until the day that we die. There's going to be a lot of injustices. But I think as Christians, we're called to recover the spirit that Jesus Christ himself had when he was on this earth where he brought in the people of the margins to sit at the table with him, and where he wasn't just here to minister to the individual person, but he actually spent his time calling out the injustices and the structural reforms that were needed of his day to bring everyone to the table. Because we know that God is a God who redeems people, and he redeems all things to himself, and he causes people to participate in that by using our voice to speak up for those who don't have a voice. You know, in... As Americans, I think so many of us can become wary because we think advocacy oftentimes is tied to such a political agenda here in the United States. But Tim Keller in his new book, Generous Justice, says that um, the biblical understanding of justice is not rooted in any one conservative or liberal theology, but in the character and being of God himself. This means that no current political framework can fully convey the comprehensive biblical vision of justice that Christians should identify with and that Christians should never identify too closely with a particular political party or philosophy. And he goes on to say that the Bible is too nuanced and balanced to fit neatly into either one of these conservative or liberal schemes. And if we tie the Bible too tightly to any particular economic system or set of public policies, it bestows divine authority on that system. You know, it's easy to look at what's happening in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo or even in India and say, oh, I know that's an injustice and I want to do something about it. And I think um, Matt Smith going on the race for Congo and Stephen and others who are going to participate in this con- cross-country trek is one way that people can use their voice and use their power to really raise awareness about what's happening in Congo. But again, advocacy doesn't necessarily mean being political but it does mean using the voice that God has given us to advocate for those without a voice. And for a lot of us today, it may mean, you know, picking up the phone, calling a member of Congress. A lot of us may have a blog where we talk about things that we uh, are concerned about, and you can use our blog to talk about what's happening and justices around the world. Or it can even mean sometimes we get emails you know, saying blatantly wrong things or things that we, we don't agree with. And it can be even responding to that email and saying, you know, I don't agree for, you know, X and Y reason. There's so many ways, I think, that we can use our voice in a way that God has uniquely gifted and equipped all of us. And as we saw in the story of Nehemiah, it doesn't just mean one individual person working together or working singularly, but it actually means all of us being equipped as a body of Christ to work together to overcome injustice. 
You know, it says in scripture that um, the scepter of justice will be the scepter of God's kingdom in Psalm 45. And we know as Christians that we live in a world full of injustice and full of wrongs in our society. But while the kingdom of God will be complete only in the coming of Christ, we can at least co-labor with God in the meantime to bring about justice in our spheres of influence. For we know that God promises in Galatians 6-9 that those who do not become wary of doing good will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So thank you so much for your time, and um, I'll just close us with a prayer. Um, Dearly Father, thank you so much for giving us um, your word and giving us the example of Nehemiah so that we can truly see, Lord God, how you use a single individual to accomplish such change within a society, Lord. And Lord, I pray for um, ourselves as followers of you, as a body of Christ, to really remember, Lord God, many of the injustices around this world, but secondly, not to feel overwhelmed, Lord, that um, we can't do anything about it. So God, I ask that you would make clear to us what it is that you called us to do as individuals and even as a church, God, and help us to always remember, God, that you are oftentimes so much bigger than we can imagine, and that you've often worked in big ways to accomplish your will um, through us, Lord. So thank you again so much again, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen.